0: Thank you all for joining us today at What Can You Do? And once again, thank you to Julie and Kathy for their time, insight, vulnerability, and energy. If you wanna learn more about the work they do at IHI, please visit immigranthistory.org online. You can find lesson plans, videos, workshop links, events, and information on how to get involved if you're interested. Also, be sure to follow them on Instagram at Immigrant History Initiative to stay updated on their work. That's all for today. Until next time, take care. to be joined by both of you today um julia and kathy and just want to ask like how you guys are doing amidst everything that's going on in your personal life and in the world just do a quick check-in
1: i'm i'm happy to go first i guess um, this is julia um, i'm i'm okay it's been a busy couple of weeks and a very exhausting year i think with um sort of the recent the even The most recent, I guess, upsurge of violence against Asian American communities, I think it's sort of every time it happens, it hits really close to home. But I think with the shooting in Atlanta and everything that's happened um, kind of shortly before and after, I think, has left organizations who are working on this issue pretty exhausted. um, If I'm going to be frank and just say I'm tired, but I'm excited to be here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, thank you for honoring us with your time and uh, excited to talk more about everything and hope you're taking care of yourself. And Kathy?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Julia really said a lot of it. Honestly, because of everything that's been going on in the news cycle, I think there's been a lot more attention focused on organizations like us that are trying to spread awareness about Asian American history, about, you know, critical consciousness raising and talking about... Where Asian Americans Fit in America's Racial Dynamics. And I'm reminded of this um, this poem by Chanel Miller that she posted on her Instagram. And it talks about feeling like you have to seize this moment because you don't know when people are going to be paying attention again. Mm. And it really resonated with me because I think, like Julia said, we are both so exhausted and so drained, but every time they're is some kind of opportunity coming in we feel like we need to grab it at this moment because we we don't know when the spotlight is going to go away right i i think we've seen in the past that this kind of attention is so fleeting even though we believe that attention
0: needs to be paid
2: all the time right not just when really awful tragedies happen
0: yeah and exactly like you said mitigating as individuals and as like a greater community suffering loss and tragedy like Knowing that you need to seize the moment in order to make that attention last and not just be kind of like a blip on the radar for people who don't often pay attention to those issues. Having to continuing to engage in that loss is a lot. And I definitely respect the work that both of you are doing to continue involving yourself. And before we get to the work, as you've mentioned it, because we haven't quite talked about IHI yet, I just wanted to give the audience a chance to get to know you guys better as individuals and people. Um, So if you guys just wanted to do like a brief introduction of who you are, both like with regard to Immigrant History Initiative and also just as individuals.
1: You can start. I feel like we always have an order, but maybe it's good to switch it up (laughs) once in a while. (laughs) It's
2: always it's always easier to go second. Um, So I'm, I'm Kathy. I grew up in the West Coast. I am a second generation Chinese American immigrant. My parents came over in the 80s, and I am the first baby of the family to be born on foreign soil. This is reflected in my Chinese name. I always get asked if I have a Chinese name, and the truth is that I don't really use it that much, but my my grandfather gave me this name because I was the first baby to be born abroad, and the meaning of the name is Yinghua, which means to like welcome kind of the Chinese or Chinese civilization or Chinese people. I, I find it interesting kind of thinking about my, my name because growing up, I was so disconnected from my Asian American roots. I grew up in a really white town in Oregon. I took APUS history with a teacher that I think most would consider quite progressive. He would assign us chapters from Zen to people's history as extra credit which was amazing, but I think still did not include a lot of information on Asian-Americans. And I was reading that thinking like, oh, this is supposed to fill in the gaps, the blank spaces that I've been seeing in my textbooks, but I still don't see myself. And so Julia and I started IHI when we were in law school together a few years ago. And I feel like IHI is really at least for me, kind of a very personal fight to to bring these histories and just these narratives, right? These stories that have gone untold or whitewashed or erased from our schools because I think it's something that our children really need. Both children who are Asian American and children who are not.
1: I also feel like every time we do these kind of interviews or podcasts, I always learn something new about Kathy, which is really fun. Um, so Thanks for that opportunity. Yes, yeah, so I'm Julia. I'm the other co-founder of the Immigrant History Initiative. So I um, am actually a first-generation uh, American. I'm an immigrant. I was born in Beijing and came to this country uh, when I was nine, and I grew up most of my childhood in the U.S. in in a suburb outside of Chicago. And kind of growing up, I, you know, I think a lot of Asian American kids go through this process of, I think, really trying to push against this identity that they have as Asians. And I think, right, part, a lot of it is informed by racism and kind of the emphasis on assimilation in to, like, white American culture. So growing up, I think I went through a phase of not really knowing my identity, but because I was born in a different country and identify as immigrant... I was really obsessed with these stories of migration. And so, you know, from the stories of people at Ellis Island, right, like European immigrants coming in, all the way to kind of generally the stories of different diasporas. Um, So when I went to college, I studied history, and I studied mostly like 20th century imperialism, decolonization in the 1960s, and kind of started to have a very, I think, global view about what migration looks like. And it's really central place in our history, but especially our recent history. And then I went to grad school, studied immigration and xenophobia in Europe. Um, and then I came to law school, right, really thinking I would, you know, go be a human rights lawyer, which I guess I still am <laughs> during the daytime. But um, I think In law school was the first time when I really engaged with Asian American history and the particular angle, right, that I engaged with it in was in the law. So we learned a lot about Asian immigrants, kind of Asian Americans who challenged their position, challenged kind of the inequality of the law and the policies that were explicitly meant to discriminate against them in the courts. And I think that was when I really started to reflect on the fact that these stories had never really been in the textbooks. I was doing a lot of reading on my own about Asian American history and realizing that we'd never learned any of this in in the history classes that I took growing up. Um, And I, I went to like a very large school with actually a lot of Asian American students, but I think the history that we were exposed to, right, was largely sort of white. You never really saw immigrants of color anywhere in that story. I think that was kind of one of the impetuses to starting the Immigrant History Initiative, right, was kind of realizing what a transformation it can be to learn this history, especially as an Asian American, to see yourself in these stories and what you are capable of as an activist, right, as as a leader. and, And those stories are really still missing, I think, in the textbooks today. So that's kind of where we started. Kathy and I met and we started this organization to really, I think, meet this gap.
0: Something that what you said, both of you made me think of, because you both mentioned feeling like disconnected in different ways from your culture and your heritage, both due to lack of access through education and through other circumstances. And like, how do you think that affected you guys growing up? Because in my own contact with people who are for and against like ethnic studies, because they're so centered in the white narrative and are unaware of the invisible disappearing quality of whiteness they don't understand what that means to feel disconnected because their narratives are always visible so if you guys could just expand a little bit more on how you guys think not just you but also people who don't see themselves in those narratives and why that's important
1: um i guess i'm happy to start and kind of trade it off i think that's a really great question i i think... I'll give like one sort of really direct example, right? And I think it's sort of the experience of cognitive dissonance. When you're a person of color, you're constantly confronted with a history that it feels really inconsistent with your lived experiences. So kind of going back to what I was saying, right? Like I was growing up, like I was really fascinated by the story of Ellis Island, these Irish um, German immigrants coming to this country, settling, right? Like moving westward. And I grew up and Kathy and I both grew up, I think in like the early 2000s, when I think this narrative of the melting pot and like assimilation was still very much the prevailing model of how you think about this history that had this power of excluding and alienating the experiences of groups of people, I think, who didn't experience this melting pot, who didn't experience becoming white in America's story. And it is a deliberate process of becoming white for a lot of European immigrants who came to this country. And so I think learning this history is really important for us to be able to see that some of these narratives are not necessarily correct, and these narratives are not necessarily reflective of the one experience in American history. And I think it also forces us to question what are the stories that are being told? For me, learning about the way that Asian Americans not only were heavily discriminated against, you know, heavily excluded during the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think also seeing them kind of time and time again giving it their all and pushing back against these inequalities like it really changed the way that I think about me as a person and where my fight is. There really is that power. And I think who was at Marion Edelman, right? I think said, right? Like you can't be what you can't see. And I think that that's true for history too. History gives us a lot of examples of the possibilities. The other thing, right? is just about belonging. Like part of the work that we do at IHI is sort of recentering the experiences of people of color, telling them that not only should you not feel alienated now, right, but you were always part of this story. You were never this foreign outsider, you were always essential to shaping this country and sort of its identity as essential then as you are now.
0: You said something that really caught my attention. I think you phrased it, the one experience of like the melting pot kind of based in the centered like European immigrant experience. And I feel like that's kind of a ubiquitous problem in American history. And like, obviously, something you guys are working on is like, erasure through this idealism and unilateral narratives that are meant they're kind of presented in a way that seems positive but in reality they serve to kind of oppress narratives that are more fitting of like a post-racial society and not that we don't want to eventually move towards a post-racial society but it's more in a way that negates oppression that's still currently happening and the legacies upon which it was founded and not acknowledging them in favor of being like, everything's fine, everyone's equal, we all just experience it the same, which just isn't true, so.
2: Um, Yeah, I think, I think Julia did a really good job of, of articulating it when she was talking about kind of this cognitive dissonance. I think it was really hard for me to answer your question because you talked about kind of like the invisible disappearing quality of whiteness, but that's not something that only affects white people. I think that affects everybody who is kind of growing up in this context. And so thinking about how I growing up, you know, I didn't notice really that anything was wrong. I thought that the history I was learning was the only important history. And the fact that I didn't see myself there meant that I wasn't part of this history. And that's just how it was, like, period. Like, I didn't question it. I was just like, yeah, that's how it is. And I think part of the damage that does is it really disempowered me, if that makes sense. It made it really hard for me to understand when things were happening that were really, can I swear, like we're really fucked up right so like thinking about very very young age wanting desperately to like dye my hair blonde, wishing desperately that I had blue eyes, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what I saw. And that's what I thought was really beautiful. And I thought that I was so ugly and I could never be beautiful unless my mom let me dye my hair, which of course she didn't. And that was the right choice. Thanks mom. Um, But also thinking about even when I was old, right? Like when I had developed critical thinking skills, I'm like 17, 18 years old on my high school debate team, going to debate tournaments and being told by the judges that I need to slow down when I talk because my accent starts coming out. And and being told that and knowing that English is my first language, I speak Chinese with an accent, and if I am being told that I also speak English with an accent, there is no language I can speak where I will be considered a native. And and at that time it was it was pretty devastating for me, right? But not in a way that I could articulate or even really process. I didn't understand where the sentiment was coming from. So I couldn't deconstruct it. I couldn't kind of fight back against these people's words, even in my own head. And so learning Asian American history, I think is part of that process of like empowering yourself because you begin to understand that these sentiments are stemming from really like centuries long racial stereotypes that are steeped in hate, the perpetual foreigner stereotype. And being able to name these things allows you to begin to both understand them, right? And also deconstruct them and begin to dismantle them. I, I believe fundamentally that you need to know the history before you can begin doing that. I also think I, I want to take a moment to not really push back, but I know your your question was very much framed about um, trying to get in very simplistic terms, sorry, trying to get white people to understand the experiences of students of color and why it's really important for students of color to see themselves in their history. Because I also think it's really, really important to see, for white students to see people of color in history as heroes, right? Not just as subjects of oppression. I think about how oftentimes when we're hearing about hate crimes or hate incidences or racially motivated, like whatever, whatever you want to call them, right? And I I think about how this person didn't get an opportunity when they were growing up to question these beliefs, right? They didn't get an opportunity to learn about narratives that might have changed the way they thought about society, might have opened up their heart a little more, built up their empathy. I think we're doing a fundamental disservice to white students by feeding them a white-centered curriculum. Because it builds adults that are are sometimes quite ugly, right?
0: I totally agree. And I I agree that in reflecting on how I framed it, I can see how it sounded more white centered. I definitely think it's important that sorry, I'm thinking of how to phrase it. Sorry, I also didn't mean like I don't think your question was like problematically phrased at all. I just wanted
2: to take a moment to kind of slip in the other no, side too. I-
0: I'm glad you did because I think as Emma can attest in our recent like discussions on ethnic studies with people who are for and against, it's a unilateral narrative doesn't serve anyone involved well, like whether it's BIPOC students or white students, because it creates very ugly people and I think a lack of empathy and a lack of understanding for all parties involved. So I'm glad you brought it up. Just to shift gears a bit. Because I definitely want to keep talking about this, but I also want to offer a little context to listeners about IHI, just so they can hear it from you guys, like what IHI is and your mission relating to everything that we've just talked about and what you try to accomplish in your work.
1: Yeah, so the Immigrant History Initiative, our mission essentially is to kind of shift the narrative and change the discourse around how we think about migration and relatedly how we think about race and justice and our theory of change on how we can accomplish that is by inserting historically centered narratives that change the way that we think of people of color and communities of color as exclusionary. I think we challenge the thinking that migration is not a normal part of kind of human existence and of global history. We do this in kind of two ways. We have two main programs. One way that we do this is trying to provide educational resources, whether it's for schools, kind of educators, or the general public. And the second part that we do, I think, is focused specifically on thinking and using history to provide a way for communities that we're a part of ourselves, providing them these ways to empower themselves not only, I think, develop critical consciousness, but also to provide a much-needed space to think about issues like immigration, like racial justice, and also to see and utilize case studies as a way to think about how to advocate for change.
0: And just for those who might not be aware, could you talk a little bit more about critical consciousness? Because I think it's really interesting, and I just want people to know more about it. Kathy, you want to take this? (laughs) (laughs)
2: I was thinking to myself, like, ah, I don't know if I can come up with like a very good definition on the spot. I feel like, honestly, we use critical consciousness as shorthand for a lot of different things. I think if you boil it down, what we mean when we talk about critical consciousness is a deliberate decentering of the mainstream view of having a mindset we where you are critically <laughs> questioning. The mainstream discourse, I think in this case, specifically about race and migration and thinking about, first of all, kind of the motivations behind why this mainstream narrative is so entrenched, what population that serves, right? what population that benefits and what, what communities that hurts. That is like maybe like the first stage of critical consciousness, kind of that breaking down stage. But then there's also a second stage of building it back up, of thinking about how to create and inhabit a world view that is more truthful to the experiences of everybody, not just the majority or kind of dominant population.
0: That was like a little garbled, but... (laughs) No, it wasn't. Like kind of creating a more equitable experience that takes everyone into account when whether it's been curriculum, dialoguing or any other circumstance. Right. It just seems like something that people really push against. Like even boiling down further, just the simple idea of questioning the status quo, questioning the centered narrative, that gets a lot of pushback as we've seen in the recent ethnic studies fight. But I do think it's critical. (laughs) ironically using that word, to shifting to a more equitable society. Well, I guess I also wanted to briefly, before we get into the deeper questions, besides the main stuff you guys covered, if there's anything you want to highlight or name drop or really tell people like we're really passionate about these projects that we're engaged in.
2: Sure. I think in this COVID-19 pandemic time period, we've really been doing a lot of triaging uh, because Julia and I got together after we saw, I think like the very first reports of anti-Asian violence that were hitting, I think, very peripheral parts of the news media because it wasn't being heavily covered until very recently, even though it's stretched back since the start of the pandemic. And at that point, we got together and knew that we needed to create resources to help combat this and to help people kind of think through what was happening, why it was happening, and think about ways to do better as a community, right, of of coming together. And so a lot of our more recent resources are very focused on this theme throughout history of xenophobia really coming to a head during times of public crisis. Specifically, in this instance, a public health emergency. How when something really terrible is going on and out of your control, it becomes very easy for you to turn to a community that is perceived as outsider, right, or as other and scapegoat them. And so we've been working on a series of lesson plans. The first one is out now. It covers these series of smallpox pandemics in San Francisco Chinatown during the late 1800s. And it's, I think, a really fascinating historical case study because it parallels so much of what is going on right now. Just as a very brief kind of historical overview, the Chinese population in San Francisco was scapegoated. Uh, They were believed to be carrying the, the smallpox virus, even though there was no evidence of it. And there was a lot of surveillance, a lot of state-sanctioned violence and governmental control over this population because they believed them to be carriers of disease. And so much goes into that. Seeing them as outsider and as filthy, right? As unhygienic, as immoral. There's this fascinating map that was commissioned by the San Francisco Board of Health. That was basically preeminent public health authority in the area at the time. They commissioned this map of Chinatown, and every other box is labeled Chinese prostitution. I just think it's it's such an interesting historical artifact because you can see how these forces of, of not just like race and xenophobia, but also gender is all like playing into it and creating this perfect storm where the Chinese population is seen as so immoral, so filthy, that... They're the only people that you can blame for this devastating virus that was killing a lot of people. In part because of that, they were actually denying Chinese people access to the hospital. They denying them access to healthcare even when they became sick. They were forced to go to this place called was it called the outhouse, Julia?
1: The pest house.
2: Yeah, the the pest house. In a very simplified way of thinking, like people kind of went to die because you weren't really cared for there. So that is. The first lesson plan, there are more lesson plans coming out, but the lesson plans are really meant to be an opportunity for teachers to hit kind of common core standards, to have something that is very academically rigorous, but also open the door to talking about what is going on right now and really pinpoint myths about, I think, particularly Asian people and how they keep rearing their head over and over again. Other than the lesson plans, we have also been working on uh, much more targeted community interventions. We did a parent workshop back in January because we had a lot of parents, we are mainly based in Connecticut, so we had a lot of parents in Connecticut come to us specifically asking for resources on how to talk to their children about Asian American identity and this kind of anti-Asian racism. And so we partnered with psychologist Dr. Jenny Wang, we partnered with parent leaders from West Hartford, Connecticut to create this workshop where we basically gave parents a crash course on Asian American history and also talked a lot about mental health and a lot about how these racist incidents that maybe their children are a part of or maybe they're just witnessing are really detrimental to mental health and constitute racial trauma. It's a form of trauma. that recording is free up on our website and we are also coming out with a parent guide that is based on the workshop very soon we are hoping to have it out in late april
0: i mean i know that that's not even all the resources on your website and still that's like a whole treasure trove of information and really helpful resources so be sure to check that out if you're listening something that you mentioned um was the importance of emphasizing what's going on now but also tying it to the legacies of the past. And something that I have thought about a lot is just kind of the dead-endedness that we seem to face in like history curriculum, at least in the K through 12 education. And what I mean by dead-endedness, we don't relate things up until our current experience, whether that be like anti-Asian racism and hatred in the 19th and 20th century, or for example, like the civil rights movement. Racism ended in 1968 with the Civil Rights Act, and then everything was fine. Racism doesn't exist anymore. Obviously, that's just one example, but that seems to be something really pervasive just throughout education. We don't draw through lines to the present, and that does have detrimental real-world consequences.
2: You bring up a really good point. I think it's why so many students think history is really boring. I feel like history has this reputation for being the most boring subject. Like, that's the subject that you sleep through. And... The fact of the matter is like, I feel like history is one of the most useful subjects because it can tell you so much about what's happening right now. I think as educators, we just need to do a better job of, like you said, drawing those through lines, right? Helping students understand the actual point of why they're learning this information because it's not just to memorize for a test. It's something that can actually help you think a little bit differently about your world right now.
0: Yeah, it's presented as like kind of barren repetition rather than critical thinking and engagement. I connected you guys with anti-racist APUSH and I interviewed Matt Reisman as well. And he talks a lot about historiography and the different like actual hands-on tools and methods that he uses to get his students engaged with the historical content directly. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that history is boring. But then when like like you said, when you guys got to college or law school and started being presented with both material and like learning environments that encouraged you to both broaden your perspective and also just have engagement with more diverse material and texts. That was when it started getting interesting. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's great that you bring up Matt actually, because I um, we've done several collaborations with him. He's fantastic. I think it's really interesting because what he's doing and like what we try and support educators in doing, right, is to show students that there is not one prevailing narrative of a history, and that you should constantly be critical. That is actually the job of the historian to, I think, bring new perspectives and angles through dedicated research. One of the things that we try to do, and this is maybe us like trying to flex our history muscles beyond our position as, you know, educators or activists or what, whatever, um, I think tr- to try and highlight pieces of history that can really change the way you think about things, right? One of the things that we focus on in our Chinese American History Curriculum that we wrote a couple years ago is about solidarity and kind of thinking about how cross racial solidarity actually has had a lot of historical examples. This is not the first time that folks have started tackling this issue or thinking about it, and you can learn a lot from the past. And another thing that we try to do, right, is to think about the ways in which migrations and diasporas bring people together, change the way that we think about the existence of BIPOC communities as living in this white and other binary that actually there's a lot of fascinating history and interaction among BIPOC communities. Those things you don't get to talk about in the classroom unless your teacher is like really doing a lot of this research on their own like Mattis. So we also want to provide these resources so that teachers can, you know, more or less easily incorporate into their classrooms and provide some of this critical thinking element even as you're confronted with topics that don't necessarily accord to like textbook publisher has written, has told you about the civil rights movement. And I also, the other thing I was going to say is you re- it really re- resonated with me um, when you kind of talked about seeing this history as without this through line, because one of the things that really stuck with me in, in law school is I had this conversation with my constitution law professor and she told me, you know, like, don't, <laughs> of assume that history has this progressive arc things don't always go for the better that really stuck with me maybe not for the reasons she wanted but i think there is an element of hope in seeing history and understanding it for what it is challenging people and sort of using that history to question what could be better and what can we change knowing what we know about what happened in the past
0: Yeah, exactly. History doesn't always have, like, kind of like you said, a narrative arc, so to speak, but that also doesn't mean that it's dead. It's alive in us and in the world that we currently live in and the structures that we currently operate in and how those structures affect people on a daily basis. So it might not have, like, a narrative arc, but it's still alive and still something that can be used. Unless anybody has anything to add, because this is a really cool discussion, Um, we could round out the talk of the org just by talking a little about how the process of starting and running it part of what we like to highlight is the activism process making it accessible and showing that it is a realistic goal to engage in activism and make change so um that's kind of like a loaded question but i guess we could just start with the process of coming together and founding the org what community building looks like and you know different people or communities that you guys really relied on and getting this off the ground
1: yeah that's a really great question I think it's it's a tough question because I think there are a lot of ways to do it, right? But I think there are definitely ways you can do this more thoughtfully than others. Um, so just, I think, by way of a narrative example. So Kathy and I started this org back in 2017 and the process was basically, um, I was having a really hard time after the 2016 election. And one of the things that really, I think Kathy and I had talked a lot about when we were just friends and not partners and co-founders was this resurgent con, I think conservative movement among our own like Chinese American communities and I think seeing really a lot of organization around for example opposing affirmative action around opposing sanctuary cities for example and it, you know it's not the majority of the community that we are a part of, but I think it was a significant group of people where we started to feel like, what is going on here? Kathy, I think, already came into law school with a lot of the Asian American history, but I was doing a lot of kind of self-learning like about this history, and I just thought some of the things that people are really advocating for, it, it feels just illogical, and I think counterproductive, given the history of where we've been. We started out thinking about like what kind of intervention can we do within our own communities we have a lot of care for our parents for you know like our peers but I think these conversations are just not happening so we started out basically teaching this course at a local Chinese school to kids who I think you know very much experienced sort of school the way that Kathy and I did growing up right like not a lot of engagement with what it means to be Asian American but at the same time confronted with a lot of kind of racialized harassment or or attacks I think that's pretty quintessential to to our experience providing the space for them to talk about these things a lot of it is developing this trust because you're going into this school with these kids I think who have incredible thoughts and lot lots of life experience that they will end up sharing with you. But I think that vulnerability takes a lot of time. And what we found is that using history and history education, it provides kind of a neutral place for kids to talk about these things. They themselves naturally make the connection to what's going on today because they're kind of reflecting and absorbing all of this information. It was kind of a haphazard start in a lot of ways because we just wanted to teach this class and we I think did not think at the time that we were going to become activists for the Asian American community. I think we really just wanted to provide this space for people. Just wanted to provide resources to people who could have been our parents, like people who could have been us. I think that's where a lot of our COVID work began. And this is the process when we started engaging um, people who are now, right, like animated and energized to, to do this work because their own communities are being threatened you can come to this with no knowledge as long as you're willing to learn and like be open and talk to other people. And that's a lesson that Kathy and I I think have had to learn, which is like how to lean on other people and work together. Because some of the projects that we've done with other folks has been like our most meaningful and powerful. And this workshop that we hosted back in January, we were surprised by how many people really found it useful and wanted to wanted that space, and how many conversations we had after that workshop of folks who want to advocate for their kids.
2: Yeah, I think when we we're talking about community building, right, community organizing, I feel like sometimes that term can hold a lot of weight, or you don't really know what it looks like, and so you don't know how to start, and that can be really intimidating. And maybe one piece of advice is like like just start off doing one thing, right? Because you don't have to have a grand master plan or some kind of really big vision. Like it could just start with one small action. I remember back when we first started teaching Asian American history at the local Chinese school, I came back home and then my parents and I were taking a road trip and I locked the doors of the car and I forcibly taught my parents Asian American history based off of the curriculum that we had written for the pilot project. Um, I, I, I should say, I, I wasn't actually imprisoning them. The doors were also locked because we were driving on the road. They just couldn't get out because we had to, you know, drive. Um, but it turned out to be a really good experience, right? Because this was something that I had never really been able to talk to my parents about. And teaching them this curriculum gave an opportunity for us to have this dialogue and to talk about some of the stuff that we had experienced as a family, right, growing up in really white Oregon. We lived in Chicago before Oregon, and I think the racial dynamics were a lot more explicit there, if that makes sense. But it's not something that we had ever talked about as a family because I think my parents didn't know how to start that conversation. I certainly didn't know how to start that conversation. And using history is oftentimes a really good on-ramp for, for that kind of stuff, especially when, especially conversations that I feel like there are a lot of emotions attached maybe people haven't processed them there's probably some trauma and history gives you distance right it gives you a chance to reflect on very similar themes but not have so much raw emotion or weight attached to that yeah and then the other the other tip i would give is just start like reaching out to people doing similar things and just get on calls with them because that is how all of ihi's partnerships started we just found someone that we thought looked really cool. Julia was usually the one reaching out because she's amazing at doing the cold email. I still get nerves when I do it. But these people are really excited to connect. People who are working on these types of things, they know how hard it is. They know how few of them there are. So when somebody new comes in, nine times out of 10, they're really happy to take the call, talk to you about what they're doing and think about ways to support you or support each other or just have like a beautiful collaborative program together
1: I'll also just say like we've come across so many people from different walks of life who are basically doing advocacy or activism work like we work with people who are parents right who are like trying to make the world a better place for their kids and then we you know meet like high school students and college students meet like yourselves who are I think much more engaged on these issues than we ever were in college or high school you know we have conversations with you know kids who are 16 17 who I think like are are really engaged on these issues and I think just starting something getting people together like Hathie said is a really good start you'll figure out who will want to be your friends and want to work together and who doesn't very quickly and that's a good thing I think
0: It sounds like you guys are describing kind of like activism through human connection, which I think is really beautiful. Also like through vulnerability, like kind of mitigating, as Kathy was saying, like your own raw emotional investment, balancing that with the distance of history. Obviously history is human, but just like, I don't know, would you call it objectivity or how would you describe it?
2: I don't know if I would call it objectivity.
0: I just couldn't think of a
2: good word. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think distance is a very good word either. Like that's the word that comes to my mind because it's it's distance, right? It's like physical distance, it's temporal distance. It's stuff that just happened a really, really long time ago. And certainly I think there can be a lot of like historical trauma attached to like really tragic things, right? Thinking about Chinese massacres on the West coast, et cetera. But it's still stuff that happened a long time ago. It's not the same thing as trying to start a conversation about how when you were five years old, someone threw trash at you and called you a racial slur. It's it's a gentler way, I think, of easing into that conversation and of beginning to think about these ideas and then, and then slowly through that kind of refractive prism of history, beginning to process a little bit of your own, the burdens that you carry with you, right? Because of what you've experienced.
1: It's interesting because I think maybe like in a different world, four years ago when we started doing this work, People, you know, question us a lot about why are you teaching history? Like, who cares? I think people have stopped saying that. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is undergirded by this upsurge of violence. And I think trying to understand where where that violence comes from. Now, more and more people, when they come to us, and I think they know that we're kind of the history nerds. But also that it provides the context to think about this, like Kathy said, beyond yourself, right? Like it provides the context to understand broader structural systems, right? And I think when you try and challenge these things, you have to think about the structures that exist beyond a single incident. And I would just say like history has always been a tool of those who are seeking change. One of the modules of like organizing, I don't know if you want to like get into this but i think it is one of the modules teaching people how to organize kind of always look at the case studies of what happened and what has worked and also the historical and local context really understand how to move things and and
0: sort of change things kind of situate yourself within the larger grand scheme also um referring back to the Something Kathy said about like vulnerability, and like when you're coming into a space, especially working with kids, emotionality of difficult topics that impact people really personally, as well as um, those who are teaching it. I just wonder what you guys think of this idea of social and emotional learning because you were talking about the relationship between like discussing really fraught but important historical issues and the way that that encourages people to relate to each other socially and emotionally, especially like through targeted social emotional curriculum and I know I've talked with some of our members a lot about social emotional learning legislation and just curious to know what you guys think about that and how it would work with history and other forms of re-educating people or help either helping them unlearn you know unempathetic ways of relating to each other or helping kids learn from a younger age how to see each other as more human
2: yeah, I, I, I think my view on it is that social, social emotional learning is imperative, and I, I'm gonna be straight up with you, right? So, before I kind of entered these circles, I didn't really know what social emotional learning meant. I hadn't really heard this term before, and when someone explained to me, it was, it, it just seemed so obvious, right? Like, of course, this is something we need. Like why do we need a fancy name attached to it to make it legitimate and for us to get it into our schools? Like, of course, this is something that is imperative to making our students good people, right? I think before people, I say people, I guess systems depended on maybe the family or parents to provide a lot of social emotional learning for their, for their children. But it's just not adequate, right? Especially as we live in a more and more diverse society, I think school has to be a big part of that, and I think it also has to very deliberately kind of confront and engage with these hot button issues of of race, of immigration, of gender, of sexuality, of all of it. We actually developed um, a restorative justice facilitation guide specifically for speaking on anti-Asian racism during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's another resource that we have on our website that we developed with an RJ expert. And the reason we developed it is because I think, yes, we want to get the history in, but ultimately history is, is kind of a vehicle, right? What we really want are the students to be having conversations with each other for them to be able to open this dialogue have the space to explicitly talk about things that are usually unsaid or swept under the rug. The resource that we use in the facilitation guide is a really amazing documentary video that was produced by a high school student in Florida. And she actually talks a lot about Asian American history in that video. And so we use that video as kind of a base As a very kind of low barrier to entry, because it's not a long video, for students to watch and, and begin to think about what it all means and how they're seeing it in their own lives. And then to be able to begin this process of not just dialogue, but also relationship building with their fellow students in a space that is not as hierarchical as the traditional classroom structure, which I think can suppress a lot of this conversation, especially conversation that lends itself to emotions. So I think that's really important. Yes, the answer is yes, I think it's important.
1: (laughs) I I also do think like, like Kathy, I I don't think social and emotional learning was really this like articulated concept. 15, 20 years ago, we were in school in K through 12 education. And I I think it's really interesting. And maybe this is not the question you asked, but I interpret this as kind of what, does ethnic studies what kind of role does ethnic studies have to play and i think it actually plays a really huge role because i don't think often educators or schools realize what a tremendous <laughs> trauma it is i think for students of color to engage with a history that has been primarily presented as the oppression and subjugation of groups of people and particularly when you look at the history of the us and right the way that indigenous communities were decimated or the huge legacy of slavery part of the the goal of ethnic studies is for students to engage right in this history and to be able to process just exactly what the legacy of this violence has been like that is a huge part of it because you can't have some of these conversations about social and emotional learning without acknowledging the lived experiences of bipoc students for whom this is not just a thing of the past, but for whom this is like their current reality.
2: Yeah. And I think also just to follow up on what Julia was saying, it's not about making white students feel bad, right? Or feel guilty. Cause I think sometimes that is an argument or a sentiment that I hear get tossed around a little bit with ethnic studies. Like you're just trying to make the white students feel bad and guilty about stuff that happened a long time ago. But the problem is, is that the bad stuff that happened a long time ago is not just part of the past, right? It still affects the present and it's still very much present in so many of the structures and how we engage with each other. It's also like systematic, right? It's all structural, but it impacts the way individuals engage with each other. To people who say that this is just going to make white students feel bad, I mean, it's, it's about social emotional learning. Like, I'm not saying that learning this history won't be painful maybe for some white students, particularly people who are like really empathetic. But the point of it isn't to make them feel bad. The point of it is to help them understand the inequalities that are going on that might have been invisible to them before and to help them think about ways forward, right? Ways to begin dismantling these inequalities. It's ultimately a very empowering process for for everybody involved, regardless of their background.
0: Well, just like you're saying, in the ethnic studies uh, model curriculum that we were advocating for this past month, that was the big hot topic issue. Like, it's divisive, it, it um, pits students against each other as oppressed and oppressors. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier. Like, the point is not to position BIPOC students in like trapped victim narratives, and it's not to position white students as unilateral oppressors does that just totally not make sense but that's not like what critical ethnic studies is founded on anyway it's founded on engagement empathy and uh another e word that's escaping me at this moment but yeah it's i think empathy is like really at the core of it all because it's making space where space has not been made for bipoc narratives in the past and in in the present um and it's not i there was this quote i'm sure everybody's heard it but it's when you've gone through your whole life um privileged, equality feels like oppression. And I think that's what motivates people when they say it's divisive. The whole point of ethnic studies is to create space for people who haven't been able to take it up before or presently. Um, I think we've kind of touched on some stuff like already without even having to explicitly ask the question. Yeah, I mean, another question was like, how can education specifically help combat Asian and Asian American hate crimes and violence against communities although I think we've kind of been talking about that at length a bit but if I do there's always more to say so if there's anything you guys wanted to particularly touch upon like why education is the most critical or one of the most critical tools in kind of combating anti-Asian violence
1: yeah I mean I think we've talked around this issue a lot sorry Kathy I just like jumped in but um I can sort of make a general comment. I mean, I think it's no accident that there are a series of ethnic studies bills being proposed focusing on Asian American history around the country at a time when there's been an upsurge of anti Asian violence. And I think a a large part of this is that when we first started noticing these issues, like Kathy said, a lot of this coverage was on the periphery. And part of that is that. You know, people, it's not that people weren't notifying institutions, notifying the powers that be that there's this problem. It's not only created at the top through polarizing rhetoric, but at the same time, I think there was a lot of lack of recognition that this is an Asian American experience. There's a lot of invisibilization of the Asian American experience and sort of how we have, I think, how violence and exclusion have always been realities for Asian communities in this country, and and I think globally as well. I can speak a little bit about the context in Europe, but certainly in the U.S. And so I think a lot of these calls to learn Asian American history is to bring those stories to the forefront, to make them visible, sort of to understand both for people who are Asian and non-Asian that, look, Asian Americans have a stake in racial equity. They have a stake in kind of dismantling racism because they've always been affected by racism. And I think also because it unpacks some of the more subtle ways that Asian Americans are affected. Education can unpack the historical roots of the model minority myth and like where that comes from and what it has done to divide groups, I think, and really separate them. It also unpacks a lot of the stereotypes that Asian Americans face that institutions don't really recognize that well. For example, this perpetual foreigner myth, it is an absolute violence to be told to go back, you know, to go back to where you came from. But if you don't understand the history, you might feel like, oh, like, you know, it's just a thing to say. Although I think you would be really fooling yourself if you're saying that even without the historical context. But I think that history provides this understanding that everything that's happening is deeply problematic and and deeply structural.
2: Yeah. I think that's right. And it actually makes me think of, Julia, what you were saying about the invisibilization. I don't think I told you this, um, but one of my friends who was Asian American told me after the Atlanta shootings that she had been what she called a violence denier for a long time. And what she meant by that was she had heard maybe a couple acquaintances, me (laughs) also, talking about how anti-Asian violence was becoming a problem. I mean, I think it was always a problem, right? But becoming very much more urgently a problem during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think she had just kind of brushed that off. She wasn't experiencing it. Her family wasn't really experiencing it. And so I think it was easier. And I think it's, it's more comfortable to do that. I, I, can, under, I can 100% understand the, the impulse to do that, and I, and I think it is also stemming from, like Julia said, the invisibilization of Asian Americans in so much of America's racial discourse. I think people don't really know what to do with us in the in the black white binary, and so I think history has a lot of value in helping us unpack that and helping us understand these really complex dynamics a little bit more. I also want to just talk really briefly about the way that we are handling these hate incidents now. I think is primarily through the hate crime framework. I think there is a lot of talk about, is something a hate crime? Is something not a hate crime? We need to expand hate crime laws. And I don't want to get into that debate because that is like a whole nother, a whole nother podcast. But I do think there is a problem with turning first or mostly to the carceral system as a solution for this because the carceral system is not a solution for this. Even if you lock up, every person who has done something shady or racist to Asians in this country, you would not be fixing the problem. You'll just have like a lot fewer people on the streets. What this fundamentally comes down to is needing to change hearts and minds, even though that sounds super corny, because all of this has been living under the surface. I think what Julia and I understand maybe because of our more extensive kind of historical knowledge about the topic is we know that this has been under the surface for a long, 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 long time. And it resurfaces very regularly whenever there is some kind of public crisis or emergency or something that causes people to become more afraid, to become more angry, to be looking for somebody to blame. I think very often Asians or other immigrants, other people of color, other people perceived as other are on the front lines for that. So what we need to do fundamentally is a lot more empathy building as a society. And I think one of the main ways to do that, not the only way, but one of the main ways that is institutionalized is through education. Um and so I think if we want to see long-term change, that is always the route at least I would try to prioritize.
1: I actually also had an experience of people coming to me uh, right like after a lot of the violence has become just finally sort of discussed in public media sort of part of the cognitive dissonance makes people want to find a safe place of denial and to be honest I think like a lot of my friends who identify as Asian American are finally ready to engage with their identity history is an important part and I think we owe it to our Asian American communities (laughs) to provide this it's an important piece of I mean frankly transformative justice criminal justice and like the carceral system are not cutting it so I think it it serves like multiple communities.
2: I'm just thinking about the Atlanta shooting and the Atlanta shootings it's a tragedy on so many levels right it's just it's unbelievably sad on so many different levels and this guy doesn't even realize that he's racist right I think that tells you something right there like he doesn't think that he killed these women because they were Asian women. He doesn't think that he was going to these places because he thought Asian women would be selling sex. He, I think what is so sad about it is that these implicit biases are so ingrained that even somebody who goes out and shoots people at these establishments doesn't realize that he's doing it because of these, these prejudices, these stereotypes. I mean, this is not something we've really talked about so far in this conversation, but just the gendered and racial dynamics surrounding this, right? It's complete, it's intersectional. And I think this is something that a lot of news outlets have been missing. It's not just about being Asian, and it's not just about being woman. It's about being an Asian woman. And this is something that dates back to the 1800s of Asian women being seen as prostitutes always and being vilified for it, being seen as immoral and tempting other people to sit, tempting other people to do bad things. And I think that is really at the root of even what this killer is is saying as his justification. It's just, I don't really have a good way to end it. It's just,
0: it's, it's a real tragedy. Glad that we're touching on the intersectionality of the issue because as you said, intersectionality tends to sometimes fall by the wayside, at least in mainstream media outlets and discussions. And something that even in like, I'm not going to phrase it very well, but just in legal recourse and in like mainstream attacking of public issues, the intersectional ways in which more people are targeted is often not met with as much attention. And kind of relates to what you guys were talking about, about transformative and distortive justice, because if we are to bridge those gaps that are often ignored, you need even more empathy and understanding and just active listening skills. I just agree with what you said, Kathy. that empathy kind of is at the center of the greater cultural and structural change we need to combat issues of racism, violence, and all that goes along with it. Something that I think that we struggle with in American culture is Band-Aid solutions versus long-term fixes for anything from mental health to public housing, public health, racism, sexism, any number of things, I don't think that we take the time or money to invest in long-term change. I don't really have any more questions. Did you guys want to plug anything, any particular events or resources that you think um, just people should be turned on to right now?
1: Yeah, I guess I can take this, Cathy, I don't know. If, um, please feel free to add. I mean, we have a parent guide coming out, as Callie mentioned, sort of reflecting some of the discussions we had during our workshop. So keep an eye out for that. We're, we've been able to get some money to get it translated. So I think it'll be very accessible for Asian communities. And we have a second installment of our COVID lesson plans, looking at the connection between anti-Semitism, immigration, and the cholera outbreaks in New York City in the late 1890s. So it's, it illustrates that this is not just an anti-Asian racism issue. It's really a issue around xenophobia and racism. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, we're always looking for (laughs) people who might be interested in developing some kind of longer history course for whether it's for young kids or for like a community setting. Because I think what we've seen is that there's been a lot of interest in doing this kind of work, whether it's in the classroom or outside. So I think we're very uh, invested in providing spaces even where they're not always possible in a traditional school setting. So please reach out to us if you want to connect or have ideas.
2: Yeah, and also just to add on to that, we are on social media. Um, we have an Instagram at Immigrant History Initiative. So please follow us, please come talk to us on there. We talk a lot about history, we drop a lot of shorter kind of graphics on historical case studies that we think are particularly relevant to what's going on today so yeah please come over and talk to us
0: i just wanted to thank you guys for like collaborating in this space and sharing your personal narratives and experiences and being vulnerable and talking about these things so thank you so much Thank you all for joining us today at What Can You Do? And once again, thank you to Julie and Kathy for their time, insight, vulnerability, and energy. If you wanna learn more about the work they do at IHI, please visit immigranthistory.org online. You can find lesson plans, videos, workshop links, events, and information on how to get involved if you're interested. Also, be sure to follow them on Instagram at Immigrant History Initiative to stay updated on their work. That's all for today. Until next time, take care.